Well, a very good morning to you all. Uh, I think we have a few visitors and holiday makers to the beautiful Peak District with us this morning. Uh, welcome to you especially. It's lovely to have you amongst us. Um, we are currently working through a series going through the book of Acts. Uh, we tend to teach all the way through books of the Bible in the morning. Uh, and we enjoy them. And if you want to catch up on this, what a riveting read the book of Acts is. You had a little bit of it read to you earlier. I'd encourage you to read that all, get the context of what we're saying this morning. But we're right in the plot of it now, and things are starting to get very exciting in Jerusalem. Well, please do have Acts chapter 5 open in front of you as we look at it this morning. Uh, before we begin, I'm going to pray and commit our time to the Lord. Father, we do ask for your help as we open your word together, as we read these words together, as we contemplate what it is that you are saying to us. Lord, may we hear the words, the living words of scripture this morning. And Lord, by your spirit, apply these words to our hearts that we might change, that our view of you might change, might be enlarged, that we might worship you better and be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ himself in the way that we live and think. For we ask this in your name. Amen. Well, now, today I want to talk to you really largely in using this passage from Acts about the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. Now, there's a lot of references as you go through the Bible to that expression. You'll, you'll come across it all through Old Testament, New, New Testament. The fear of the Lord. For example, the book of Proverbs in the Bible is all about wisdom. And wisdom really in the Bible means life skills, how to do life really well. And Proverbs lays a foundation right in the first chapter saying that the fear of the Lord is where wisdom begins. It's the beginning of wisdom. That is, living your life well starts and ends with fearing the Lord rightly. So what does it mean, this expression, to fear the Lord? I mean, people use the expression, actually, in everyday life. I mean, probably more so a few years back. But, you know, you get that expression, don't you? I'll put the fear of God in him. You know, when I was a teacher, um, I mean, we would use expressions like that. Back in the old days, when you could put the fear of God into a child, uh, you'd say that, you know, or you'd say, oh, that, that really put the fear of God in me. And what we used to mean by that is that it gave me a bit of a, a, bit of a scare. It, it taught a lesson to me. Generally, we mean like a threat almost, don't we, when we use it that way. It's th something threatening. Or to experience a kind of shock that makes you think again about something. But the Bible isn't really talking about being scared or shocked or threatened when it uses that expression. I mean, that would mean that you only start to learn how to live your life wisely if you're living in a constant state of terror, wouldn't it? It's not, clearly not what it means. We know that isn't true. The Bible, especially the New Testament, describes God very much as being approachable, uh, as being a, a tender, heavenly father. That's how our relationship with God is. Uh, so a lot of people define the word when you come to it, define that expression as the fear of the Lord, really fear meaning reverence or respect or honour. And that's kind of rightish. That's most of the way there, or at least it's part of it, but it's not quite the whole thing. I want us to get to grips a little bit more with this this morning. Fear doesn't have to do necessarily with scary things, you see. For example, if I was to say, listen, I'm afraid 
that I really cannot come round to your house for tea tonight, it doesn't mean you've scared me off. And, you know, I'm, I'm sitting at home shaking with terror of, of, of the prospect of coming to you. It means something of a higher priority has come along, doesn't it? I'm sorry, I'm, I, I'm afraid I can't come. Something more important has come up. You know, for, let me illustrate this. You know, a while back, it was a number of years ago, the kids were little. We were cooking Sunday lunch at home. Uh, and the kids were fooling around in the kitchen. You know, it's not in our current house. Uh, crawling at our feet as we're preparing the dinner. And now Sarah took a large dish of roast potatoes out of the oven. And she was using a very old oven mitt. Maybe she remembers this. Uh, it, you know how oven mitts just wear thin through to the fabric, and you start wearing them back to front, don't you, just to get a little bit of padding. At least we do. We're a bit tight. So there's a hot dish here. She takes it out of the oven, and there's children down there. And it was then that her mothering instincts kicked, kicked in, and, and despite the searing pain in her hands, she manages to hold on to the dish long enough to throw it onto the side where it, where it smashed. Burned hands or burnt, burned children... That's what she was confronted with, a decision. Burned hands, burned children. See, it's often at the point of crisis that actually we discover what we fear most. See, we're not necessarily talking about what scares us most, but what, rather, what really has our heart? What really has our fullest allegiance? Or what is it that I value most, put the most weight on at this particular moment? So the crisis or the decision point could be anything that leads us to make a judgment call. For example, say the temptation comes along and I'm faced with, with a temptation. Do I have an affair with my secretary? Don't worry, Liz, it's not happening. <laughs> no. Okay. <laughs> well, I shouldn't have said that. No, because I fear my wife. And, and that doesn't mean that I'm scared of her. You know, it's on a very basic level. I fear God, and that's more important. But no, because on one level, I fear my wife. And that doesn't mean I'm scared of her, though I might be. But that she has my heart. She has my allegiance. I value, I treasure our marriage. I rightly fear, in that sense, betraying her. The fear of betraying my wife is far stronger than the lure of an illicit liaison. That's the point. So can you see, to understand what the fear of the Lord is, really you've got to have something to contrast in there. Something that's trying to compete with God. And I show that I fear him by choosing him above all else. And let me make it really simple. I mean, I guess we, we understand what the expression, it's quite commonly used as well, it, what it means to fear man. So, for example, I was remembering an incident I had when I was quite young. I was talking to uh, a chap from, from our church. We called him Uncle, Uncle George. And he was talking about a situation he'd been in in another church where uh, someone had done something and it was disapproved of, and he thought it was wrong to disapprove of it. And I said to him, well, Uncle George, why didn't you make a fuss? And he said, oh, Andy... It was the fear of man. It was the fear of man that stopped me. I let fear dictate my actions. The fear of man. So the fear of God is seen most clearly in a contrast to the fear of man. When I say act a certain way because of the fear of man, it means I gave in to peer pressure. I was so worried about what people might think of me 
that I let that fear dictate my actions. When I fear the Lord, here's, here's what it boils down to. It means I care more about what he thinks than I do about what anyone else thinks. And I act accordingly. Now bear that one in mind as we look at this passage. You know an example of it? Everyone badmouths the boss, goes on in, in my head is, what does God say? And whose opinion do I care more about? It's where my, my allegiance is, it's where my heart is. And so, in the words of one author, and maybe you know Warren Wearsby used to put it this way, he'd say, look, I live my life to an audience of one. That, that really is a good way of summing up what the fear of the Lord is. And that's what a wise life looks like. Now, this passage we've just had read to us is about a church that fears God. And it also shows us an enemy against the church that really doesn't, an enemy that fears man. So what I want to expose from these verses this morning is what it looks like in real life to fear the Lord and what it looks like in contrast when we fear men instead. So let me give you some, some points on this. So first of all, here's, here's some of what it looks like to fear the Lord. The first one, the fear of God, is a wholeheartedness, is nobody is playing at church in a church that fears the Lord. So verse 11, look with me. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Great fear. Now, if you were with us last week, you'd know what events we were talking about. It's the story of Ananias and Sapphira, this couple that tried to deceive God. They tried to lie to God and they fall down dead in the service. I mean, the news of that happening must have spread like wildfire throughout the city, don't you think? You can imagine the conversations in Jerusalem. Did you hear what happened? This couple, they tried to deceive the Jesus followers. You know, they tried to lie to God and they both dropped down dead. Right in the middle of the service it was. I mean, I thought that this movement, this Jesus movement, was pretty good, pretty interesting, pretty exciting. But now, do you know what? Despite all of those healings, those exorcisms, everything like that, all the lovely, exciting stuff, I used to hang around and watch it. Despite all of that, do you know, I, I'm not so sure. It's all got a bit serious, actually. And so we read verse 13. No one else dared join them after that happened. Even though, look, they were highly regarded by the people. But nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. So here's the first thing about what a church that fears God looks like. They're meeting publicly. They're right there in the centre of the community, the hub, the community hub, the temple. And people are listening and watching, and there's a seemingly endless stream of sick and needy people being brought to them. Crowds from the towns around, you know, around Jerusalem, they're bringing people to see the, the, the apostles, the disciples here. And men and women are seeing and hearing the signs and the wonders and hearing the message. But, here's the point, no one is confused about whether they are part of this group or not. Whether they are part of the church or not. There's a clear distinction. I might watch it from a distance, I might be an, an interested onlooker, but I'm not actually joining unless I really believe here, because it's dangerous. Something a little bit dangerous about it. Remember Ananias and Sapphira, God sees the heart, I can't hide. You don't want to be a pretender, you don't want to be a fake in this community. Now perhaps that's you. 
You know, perhaps you know you're not actually yet a follower of Jesus, but you're here week after week, and you like the people, and you like the atmosphere, and you like the coffee and the biscuits. And listen, you're very welcome. I want to say that first of all. We love having you here with us. But be careful about calling yourself a Christian. Be careful about deceiving yourself, about where you really stand with God. No one dared join them, says Luke. No pretenders. There's no nominal believers. There's no confused group in the church that are kind of like a fringe hanging around it. And yet, look at verse 14. Yet more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. It's a growing church despite all of this. They're growing. But they're not just growing by gathering confused kind of groupies into, into the community. They're gaining converts. People are being joined to them who've had changed hearts and changed lives. You know, one of the problems that's plagued the church for centuries is something called nominalism. It means Christian in name only, no deeper than just a name. People who act or actually sometimes even think they are genuine believers, but they're not. And sad to say, churches up and down this land, I've worked in some of them, are full of people like that. Now, there's nothing wrong with a church that has a fringe of, of people that come in, a group of people who, who come to church because they're investigating Christianity or because it's a place that, where they feel there's community that they so lack and they feel loved and they feel cared for. I mean, I'm sure our hope is here that, that that will always be the case in this church. People feel welcome. But here's where it becomes a problem. When people start to think that just because they've been coming for years somehow they've morphed into a Christian. They've sort of, it's just happened. You know, like they became a Christian by osmosis. It just sort of, it permeated into them. They just hung around long enough and it, and it, and it happened. You know, listen, even if you were to sleep in the garage every night, you won't become a car. Or as I think the inimitable Keith Green put it, I love this, just because you go to McDonald's every day doesn't make you a hamburger. That's the point. There's only one way to become a Christian. That is to repent of your sinful direction of your life, to turn and put your trust in Jesus. To trust him wholly, the one who died for your sins, who rose from the dead to guarantee your salvation. And in a church that fears the Lord, it will be very clear who's saved and who's not. That's the first thing. The second thing about a church that fears the Lord, a people that fear the Lord, is it leads to a life of conviction. Where, you know, what God says trumps anything that any man says in this community. Well, we've seen this already in previous chapters, haven't we? Have a look at verse 29. Look at Peter's response to this uh, Sanhedrin council. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. It's not the first time he said this to them either, has it? And it's embarrassing when you're, you're supposed to be the leaders of the community, the religious leaders of the community, and these people have to say this to you. The apostles here have been imprisoned, and an angel has come. It's a brilliant little story here. And angels come and set them all free. And the angel's given them some instructions, verse 20. These are instructions straight from God, aren't they? Go, stand in the temple courts, and tell people the full, not, not just a bit of, but the full message of this new life. 
a messenger from God. They have no, no hesitation. They go. They do it. They do what they're told. Off to preach. You see what's happened? The authorities have said no. But God has said yes. And they know, who to, they know whose voice to listen to because they fear the Lord. And so you've got this, uh, this brilliant little story of you know, some embarrassing situation down at the prison, haven't you? We lock them up. The doors are still locked, but they're gone. Nobody, you know, who can you even blame for this? <laughs> but they're arrested again and they're dragged again in front of the entire ruling council of the Jews. Verse 28, they say, look, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. Strict! No teaching Jesus, do you understand? And Peter's response, well, you said no, sure, but God said yes. We must obey God rather than men. It's a powerful lesson for us to learn, isn't it? Clear conviction. If God has said it, well, that's enough to convince me. I'm going with that. I don't care what you say. A church that fears the Lord, then, takes God at his word. Now, that might sound obvious. But the fear of man, you see, is always going to try and counter that and get, try to get the upper hand. Does God really say? Did God really say? No sex outside of marriage? Marriage between a, a man and a woman? That Jesus is the only way to heaven? That there's a heaven and a hell? That there's a judge before whom all mankind will stand? You know, the world doesn't like that stuff. Man doesn't like that message. They want to know, isn't there some room for negotiation here, for compromise? Have we got to call these things sin? Can't we just preach the stuff that people like hearing? Or at the very least, avoid preaching the stuff they don't? And the answer is no. We must obey God rather than men. What God says trumps anything that men say. That's a church that fears the Lord. You know, it's heartbreaking what happened last week within the Methodist church movement. At their conference, this is according to the BBC reports, they overwhelmingly voted in favour of same-sex marriage. Now, first of all, that is not marriage as God defines marriage. God's given his word on that. In fact, Jesus clearly defines marriage as the union of a biological male and a biological female. Matthew 19. Jesus says this to them. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. That's marriage, as the Bible defines it. God's given his word. Whose word we listen to? I mean, second of all, it approves of that which God has called sin and tries to pretend like it's not. God defines sin in his word. If we redefine sin, men and women will not know what they should repent of. And can I say, we are a church, I want to say this category, we're a church that welcomes all people, all kinds of people. But loving and welcoming people does not mean we approve of what they say or what they do. Or indeed that we're going to allow them to redefine what God has already defined. We will say, along with Peter and the apostles, we must obey God rather than men. 
That's the second characteristic. They care about what God says. The third characteristic here is that the fear of the Lord brings, and this is an interesting one, it brings joy even amidst suffering. That's powerful, isn't it? Look at verse 41. The apostles left the Sanhedrin, and this is after they've been roughed up, rejoicing because they've been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stop preaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. So the disciples are brought in and they're flogged. Each of them receives a really good whipping. The Jewish council takes their anger out on the bared backs of the apostles. And yet they hobble off home to dress their wounds and they are rejoicing. And it's not some kind of weird, twisted pleasure derived from pain. The source of their joy is the fear of the Lord. Their hearts and their allegiance, you see, have been proved to be firmly with their Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. They had a choice. Shut up and live a quiet life or speak up and get a thrashing for it. And so now on their backs, they have the scars to prove they love their Lord. And that's a joy. Disgrace for the name of Jesus was a badge of honour. Everything was being done and lived for an audience of one. What will enable you to rejoice then when you suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus? Knowing, only knowing he's pleased with you. There's a joy in that. He asked you to go, to take his gospel to the world. And he warned you, all men will hate you because of me. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. And that's what matters. So who knows how you or I may be called to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. But that is our calling. And more than that, it's our privilege to actually be involved in the sufferings of Christ, to be like Jesus, suffering even as he did. So that's a people who fear the Lord. It's powerful, isn't it? Will you be like them? It takes courage. Will you be wholehearted, an unmistakable follower of Jesus? You're not going to get confused with people who don't follow him. Convinced that what God says is the important thing and what God says goes. And joyful even when you have to suffer for Jesus. Well, that's only half the story, isn't it? Let's turn our attention then from these God-fearers to their opponents, the man-fearers that we have in contrast with them. Now, no doubt these community leaders, these religious professionals in the Sanhedrin, would have liked to be considered as, I mean, this would be their tagline. They'd probably have had T-shirts with this on them, God-fearing Jew. That's who they were. But let me trace out three ways in which the fear of man gets the better of them and actually betrays where their allegiance really lies. And this is important because these are three areas in which we might stumble too, because we're human beings. The first one's verse 17. Jealousy. The desire to be admired. Then the high priest and his associates, who are members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. And it's pure and simple there. It's the green-eyed monster. The Sadducees were all about prestige and popularity. 
They really cared what people thought. And this party had many friends in high places. That's what they were all about. I mean, even the high priest was a Sadducee. They were kept in power largely, not because of what they knew, but because of who they knew. That's how the party operated. And people, it seems, were flocking to the temple lately, but it was not to see the Sadducees. It was to see Peter and the apostles. The whole town's alive with, the, with talk of miracles and wonders and, and signs and healings. And we read in verse 13, it's the apostles now who were highly regarded by all the people. I mean, that's what the Sadducees wanted, to be highly regarded by all the people. And they couldn't stand it. It aroused jealousy in them. They wanted the attention, the accolades, the adoration of the people. That's the fear of man at work. Beware of seeking your rewards from men. You know, Jesus warned about that over and over again, didn't, didn't he? You read through the Sermon on the Mount. Constantly, Jesus is telling people, don't do your giving, don't do your praying, don't do your fasting or any of your acts of devotion before men. Don't do it to get their praises, but be, do it because you want God to see. If you do it for the praises of men, then that is all you will get. And don't be jealous of what God is doing in others. It's an important lesson, isn't it? Instead, rejoice with them. That can be hard, can't it? I don't know what it is for you. I guess we all have something like this. And I think when you go through teenage years, it's particularly hard, this. But this is when someone comes along who is just brilliant at doing the one thing that actually you find your identity in, and it's your big thing. But they're just brilliant at it. <laughs> it's hard, isn't it? Or it's the person that you wish, you know, you see their life and think, oh, I wish I had that life. That's the life I want. They've got it. It can be hard to rejoice with them. You know, I see a preacher who's oozing with talent and he's half the age I am. I can feel the jealousy stirring. I want what he has. But that, brothers and sisters, that's purely, that's the fear of man at work. The fear of the Lord says rejoice. Look at the wonderful potential that God's given to that young man. How can you encourage him? Brother, I wish I had your gift when I was your age. Let me encourage you to use it for his glory. Let's thank God for it. Jealousy is a close cousin to pride and a heart full of pride. It's what the Lord turns away from, doesn't he? Imagine how different the book of Acts would actually look, how different this story plot line would go if the Sadducees had grasped, had actually believed this was a movement of God that was happening. And rather than trying to crush it, they decided to try and bless it. I don't know what that would have looked like. It would have been very different from what we read in these pages, wouldn't it? Because jealousy, the fear of men, destroys. But the fear of the Lord, it builds up. Well, that's the first thing. The second thing here is the fear of man leads to cowardice. Because I don't want to be attacked by people because of what I believe. Look at verse 26. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought them the apostles. This is just after the uh, preaching incident in the temple, after they've been imprisoned. They did not use force, verse 26, because they feared that the people would stone them. There's the fear. There's the fear of people, isn't it? The fear of man will strip away your courage. You know, in, the case, in this particular incident, it works out quite well for the, the apostles, doesn't it? Because these guards come to fetch the apostles that second time, and this time it's a very low-key approach. It's, you know, 
hello, sorry, um, you know, if you don't mind, the management would like a little word with you, what you're doing here. If you just come this way, if it's not too much trouble, please just, just follow us. It's all very different, isn't it? And it's different from what you're seeing in, on display in the apostles. Instead of conviction, they've got this conviction, we must obey God, not men. There's only really this sort of cowering, sort of cowardice here. Let's not upset the apple cart. You know, everything that's going to happen as they take the, the, the apostles on here is going to be done behind closed doors. Just in our little, yeah, let's just keep it away from the public eye. It's a desperate bid to avoid unpopularity. We don't want to suffer. I don't want to be attacked for what I believe, so I'll keep it under wraps. You know, a few years back, um, I went with a colleague to a church where there was a local parish church. They were putting on some Lent lectures, which, which the Anglicans tend to do as a, a local parish church. And the vicar, the previous week, the vicar had had a, a Buddhist in to talk about what he believed to his congregation. Uh, and this particular, the next day, I think it was, uh, he invited in a secular humanist to also tell, to win over his congregation, as it seemed, as we sat there. And after this lecture, which we were just... We, could, we were baffled. We were confused by what was going on. But my colleague, who's bolder than I am, took the decision to get up, to go to the front of the church, and to challenge point by point what had been said by this secular humanist and to point out where it was wrong. Now, this was not popular with the audience, and the whole situation started to turn a little bit ugly. I mean, I was well outside of my comfort zone at this point. I just let the whole thing just roll on. But as my friend tried to address the group, one member of the audience called out and said, everybody turn your backs on him. Uh, it was very British. Uh, and, and they valiantly tried to do this and discovered that they were actually in fixed pews. And it was very, very hard to turn your back on someone when you, you can't turn your chair. It was a painful, it was a funny but painful experience. Rejection. No one wanting to listen. Insults, accusations, intolerance. Now, I'm not saying that our approach on that particular day was the right one. I'm not saying go out and do that. But at least it feared God rather than feared men. It's much easier to take a gentle approach to say nothing. I mean, that's more my tendency. You know, I would walk away from the meeting and moan and complain later find some sympathetic ears to talk to and we would all moan together but let me just lay this this challenge to us you know we, we need to have that prayer for boldness in the previous chapter where the church is gathered together praying god will give them courage we need to have that still ringing in our ears we don't want to be pandering to the fear of men so maybe there's a letter you need to write in response to something you know you Write to your MP about something that's wrong. Phone the radio chat show, perhaps. It takes some guts, doesn't it? It may not be for everyone. And you'll probably get shot down for your point of view. Fair enough. Or there's that comment at work that you just let slide every time. When you've been given a clear opportunity to witness for Jesus, just take it. Perhaps we just need to hear that. Of course, we need to ask for wisdom. But don't let us get confused with what we're calling wisdom. Actually get that confused with actually what is really in, real, in reality is the fear of men. You will be attacked for what you believe. You can't read the book of Acts without coming to that conclusion. 
But don't fear men. Fear God. His opinion about what you do and what you say is what really matters, isn't it? More than anyone else's. Well, thirdly and finally then for us, the fear of man always cares about reputation. I don't want to be seen as the bad guy. I don't want that reputation as, you know, the bad guy, the, the negative person. Well, look at how the Sanhedrin continued. Verse 28, they say to the apostles, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. I mean, now you're seeing their real concern, aren't you? Peter's sermons were devastating to the Jewish council. People are listening to him. The cross could not be preached in Jerusalem without specifically indicting these men, actually, because, because they're the ones that tried, convicted, and persuaded the crowds to call for his crucifixion. And Peter had preached those home truths directly to the council before. Now, for good measure, he does so again. Look, verse 30. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and saviour that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. And do you see the logic of what's going on here? You cannot preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins unless you first of all preach sin. Jesus said it's not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick. And the problem with the people Jesus was talking to was there was an awful lot of people there who thought they were healthy when they were sick and they wouldn't come to a doctor. If you don't know you're sick, you'll never listen to the remedy, will you? I mean, imagine that I went round to Tiago's house later on this week and, and I took with me a massive syringe and I knock on the door uh, and he opens the door and I pull out this enormous syringe. I say to him, Tiago, uh, do you know what? I have got to give you an injection directly into your heart, you know, movie style. I'm going to stab it through your sternum. We're going to pump in all of this good medicine here. Um, you know, he would... He would run away screaming, wouldn't he, quite rightly? He'd go off and cuddle the cat or something. But if I approached it differently, perhaps, <laughs> I explained, you know, an expert friend of mine, world export, but expert, has been observing him on the videos that we've been broadcasting. He's noticed, without doubt, that Tiago is in the, the, the advanced final stages of a fatal disease. It's going to take his life within the next two weeks. But listen, Tiago, I've sold my house. I've sold everything. I've got the cure for you. It's in this syringe. Now, hard though that news would be to take, I think he'd want to talk further, don't you? See, no one likes being shown that they're a sinner. No one likes to admit that they need rescuing. Of course we don't. We're too proud for that. But unless we teach the truth about sin, our message of forgiveness is meaningless. Nobody will want it. So don't let the fear of man stop you because you don't want to be seen as the bad guy the one who judges we all judge it the one who talks about sin and death all the time just ruins the conversation can i just point out there's something very different between offending someone which the gospel will do and being offensive i'm not saying be offensive but part of sharing the gospel with others is that you will offend Fear the Lord. This is how to walk wisely. What he thinks has got to be way more important than what anyone else thinks. Well, that's, I think, the lesson from this chapter. But I want you to see in conclusion, actually, a very interesting thing in the, in the last little section here, that actually these leaders are 
uh, you know, they are actually accused by their own words, condemned by their own lips. And here's the curious thing. I don't know if you think about this, just think about what was said. And it should be up there on the screen for you. Those symptoms of the fear of man, jealousy, cowardice, concern for reputation, they are the very things that will stop you coming to Jesus in the first place. Jealousy. Thinking about yourself. Living only for things that will benefit you. Loving the things of this world. Cowardice. Never having the courage to follow through on your convictions, even if you are persuaded something might be true. Reputation, constantly worrying about what others might think of you if you made that decision. Those are all stumbling blocks stopping you from humbling yourself before your maker and asking him to forgive you and rescue you. You know, it is quite possible to know everything, to know the gospel back to front and yet be paralysed by your fears, isn't it? Well, this court case ends in these last verses with advice from a man called Gamaliel. Now, I don't think he should be credited with any kind of special godly wisdom here. I think God is using him. I do think he speaks far better than he knows he speaks. He betrays a lot. Here, then, is the last nail in the coffin, really, for the Jewish council here. Gamaliel gives two anecdotes, doesn't he, about these, these two men, zealots, who tried to form movements and it all fell apart. And he says in verse 38, Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourself fighting against God. Do you see what's going on here? He's making this point, isn't he? That things that come from a human origin, what you mean like the fear of man, fame, pride, reputation, yes, will ultimately fail. He's telling them that. But that which is from God, you mean verified by signs and wonders, perhaps? The resurrection of Jesus? Yes. That will never fail. You'll only find yourself fighting against God, he says. Man or God, who will you fear? Father, help us to hold fast to you and to your word and to fear you above all. Give us courage to stand for your truth even when the world judges us to be out of step or prejudiced or even wicked. Help us not to bow to the pressures that we face in this world, to conform to their worldview, their version of morality. Help us, we pray, truthfully, faithfully, yet with great love, compassion and grace to proclaim the good news of salvation to our unbelieving world. And help us to do this so that your great name will be honoured, so that men, women and children will come to you for salvation. For we ask this in the good name of our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.